Hey everyone, I'm Jacob Cohen Donnelly and this is a Media Operator. This show is a discussion about building media companies for current and prospective media operators. We discuss business models, products, audience development, subscriptions, advertising, commerce, everything to help you with your media business. To learn more and to become a premium member of the newsletter, visit amediaoperator.com slash amopodcast to receive 10% off a yearly subscription. This episode is brought to you by Front Office Sports. FOS is growing and is looking to add a few critical roles to the team. The first is an SVP of brand partnerships to continue creating exciting packages for world-class clients. The second is a head of integrated marketing to bring to life what the brand partnerships team sells. And finally, a growth marketer that is both an acquisition and retention expert. If you want to join this exciting brand at the center of the business of sports, visit jobs.frontofficesports.com. My guest this week is Ryan Selkis, the co-founder and CEO of Masari, a crypto data and market intelligence platform. Over this 50-minute discussion, we talk about what they're building at Masari, the two paid products that they have, and how they look at advertising as a means of reaching negative CACs. We also discussed his big tip for creators that are trying to get their start. I hope you enjoy our discussion. So you and I go way back compared to most of my guests since, you know, we've both been in crypto now a long time, though I suppose you could say I'm technically a passive participant now. And we both used to work together at Coindesk since you hired me there exactly four years ago. Is today the anniversary? Yeah, I started on uh, two days after Election Day 2016. Wow, there we go. It was, it was, uh, it was something. Um, uh, but before we dive into the nitty gritty of what you're working on right now, what's your background and how did you find your way to working in media and information products? Uh, sure. So I started in um, uh, my career in venture capital, uh, got into crypto in 2013, really as an independent analyst. Uh, and at the time, uh, I was an analyst just writing a daily newsletter for no other reason than there weren't really any technical jobs or, 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 or non-technical jobs, I should say, uh, to be had across the industry. Um, Coindesk, um, the first and, and kind of largest media publication was started about six months um, before I started writing full-time. I actually joined Coindesk uh, kind of as a, a freelance contributor to their early team as well. Um, but really for me, um, studying the industry, it was kind of more of a means to an end, just getting to know everybody and, and, and ultimately um, making a, a name for myself as an entrepreneur, uh, first and foremost. Um, I ended up getting to know a ton of people really quickly in the industry because I broke the largest story um, that had come out at the time, uh, the young history of the industry, uh, the bankruptcy of the Japanese exchange, Mt. Gox, in February of, of 2014. And um, through that, you know, got a, a pretty significant following from all the major investors, executives, uh, and, and other kind of hardcore um Bitcoin folks in, uh, in in 2014. So I parlayed that into uh, starting full-time on the founding team at Digital Currency Group, uh, which is a large uh, investor in the industry, led seed investing activity, uh, helped the company kind of get off the ground and, and, and form initially. And we acquired Coindesk uh, to bring things full circle with how I started in the industry in early 2016. Um, in mid 2017, uh, after we'd completed the restructuring, as you know, um, I left and uh, ended up taking a couple months off. And, and it happened to be around the same time that the token economy and, and kind of the ICO euphoria was hitting in, in 2017. Um, realized that there was going to need to be an information provider that focused on more than just Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and could actually merge the quantitative um, and the qualitative because this emerging asset class was so young and, and uh, everything seemed like it was an edge case and there wasn't really any kind of regulated norms uh, around you know data and information as you'd expect in other financial uh, services. Um, 
so you know we basically set out to reverse engineer uh, things like Edgar reporting requirements um, and uh, all of the quantitative feeds that you'd need to set up to have the equivalent of like a Bloomberg terminal. So if CoinDesk was the paper, the kind of newspaper of record or, or, or however you want to describe it, then Masari, um, you know, from, from day one was always um, aiming to be the, the Bloomberg terminal, the second screen uh, that individuals and, and kind of hardcore um, crypto users or, or professionals would use to access information. So let's jump right into Masari, uh, because I've become increasingly fascinated with niche data plays ever since chatting with Craig Fowler from FreightWaves, uh, one of my early guests on the show. So what does Masari actually mean, the word? And then looking at the market in 2017, what need did you identify that really led to launching this company? You know, And what was the early thesis that you shared with uh, your early investors? Uh, sure. So, so I'll, I'll start in reverse order. You know, the, the thesis is, is pretty obvious. Um, there's there needs to be information dense um, resources for professionals and power users that are are trying to stay up to speed on all of the daily developments in in what is an insanely fast moving industry. Um, anything that's growing exponentially, like crypto, that has the um, insane level of unstructured information is going to need a, a, a healthy aggregator and curator of information. Um, and if you look around at, at you know, some of the most valuable M&A activity in the industry, that, that's actually kind of borne out with, with two larger acquisitions. Um, so we said, you know, we want to build for the, the crypto professional. And that user isn't necessarily here yet, although that's definitely an emerging persona. Um, and the way that I think about um, the crypto and and uh, kind of broader Bitcoin industry in general is, is as one that's gone through uh, now three full cycles and is kind of going into maybe the end of the third. Um, uh, and, and each one of those is going to have different information. The first was just the hardcore hobbyist um, and the tinkerer. And, and I'd say that the winning data platform at that point was a company called blockchain.info. And essentially all it was, was, you know, a a blockchain monitoring tool for the Bitcoin blockchain. If you want to be able to confirm where your transaction went, whether it actually was confirmed, you would enter your address, you'd get, you know, basically a a, a very easy search tool to to monitor high level on-chain activity just for the Bitcoin blockchain. And of course it's expanded since then, but the persona was the early user, the hardcore hobbyist if you're trying to get a little bit more granular about what's going on in the blockchain. Um, the second phase was in 2017 and a company called CoinMarketCap, which earlier this year sold for $400 million, um, aggregated high level price and quantitative information on the universe of tokens that just exploded in, uh, in late 2017. At one point it got, I think, bigger than Yahoo Finance uh, for the number one finance uh, site on the you know entire web. Um, that was right around the time that Masari launched, but our focus was not on like the retail speculator, which is what 2017 was about, but it was thinking about what, what's the next cycle going to be. And, and our thesis was that we we're going to get to a point in the next cycle where the um, universe of investable assets expanded well beyond just Bitcoin and Ethereum for legitimate investors, not just retail audiences. And they were all going to have different um, reporting requirements. They were going to have uh, different uh, levels of care with the diligence that they would uh, do around investments in these assets and their ongoing portfolio monitoring. And um, as such, they were going to need a, a more reliable um, set of books uh, to refer to and, and, and more reliable set of tools that, that could give them a, a you know, 30,000 foot view and a very nuanced view of what was going on within a different sector, different asset. Um and, uh, and make sure that they never missed a beat. Um, and that's where the um, the concept behind the Masari name was, was really born because it harkens back to uh, the Venetian uh, merchants and the history of accounting, actually. Um, and the Masari uh, merchants were, were basically the treasurers in um, in Venice that invented triple entry bookkeeping or double entry bookkeeping rather. And, uh, and popularize that as a um, 
just you know part of doing business essentially. And what's interesting about the history of accounting is it actually got popularized in many respects because of um, uh, a Franciscan monk named Luca Pacioli, who is kind of widely regarded as, as the, the father of accounting. And he popularized uh, double entry bookkeeping, which is one of the most boring but important um, innovations that that you know led to you know a lot of the the um, revolution um, in capital and in in the Renaissance, um, and he basically was able to popularize this notion because uh, he argued that uh, good clean books weren't just a nice to have or kind of like a good business innovation, but they were a moral imperative to be able to better trust your your counterparties. Um, and so a lot of what we've thought about at Masari, especially if you think back to 2017, um, that triple entry uh, accounting and that innovation around these distributed ledgers that underpin these digital assets as kind of uh, independent, verifiable sources of truth and kind of unique public records um, was going to be, you know, as big or bigger than the, the double entry bookkeeping innovation from you know, 600 years ago. Um, and Masari, in, in many respects, is that kind of third ledger um, for, for many of our users. When you started Masari, it was primarily, at least if I recall correctly, primarily started as a content play. Um, you were curating a lot of information that was going on, but you made an early acquisition by purchasing on-chain FX, which even then was probably one of the best price sites out there, even if it wasn't the largest. Um, your co-founder at Masari also created on-chain FX. So did was Dan a part of Masari at the inception or did he sort of join when you acquired on-chain FX and why make this acquisition so early on in the history of Masari? So, you know, when Dan and I first started talking, he had he, he was working on on-chain FX and I, I was actually at consensus as an, as an entrepreneur in residence. And he said, you know, hey, I've got this new site, you know, you should check it out. Um, and, you know, I, I basically called him back and I was like, we should work together. We should, we should build a company together. And, and you, know, by the, you know, by the way, you know, on-chain effects could be, you know, one of the primary users of the data that I think we ultimately want to get. But your problem uh, with on-chain effects uh, on a standalone basis is going to be getting high quality information out of these projects because a lot of the data points that you want to include in this filter in, in this screener that you've built just aren't that easy to come by unless you're actively working with the projects or you know some of the insiders. Um, and uh, you can think about it almost like um, the the public markets versus the private private markets for stock, right? If you want to get private company valuations, um, it's very difficult. You don't know when the last, you know, when the last mark was or, or, or the last investment, you know, what the, what the precise valuation was. You don't know who the shareholders are. Um, you don't know if there's any kind of secondary activity you know, with, with uh, different shareholders transferring um, ownership. Um, as soon as the company goes public, though, you know, who all the kind of key, you know, people in the org chart are, you know, how much uh, equity they have, you know, um, who the large institutional holders are. There's some semblance of, of uh, kind of communications with with investors and stakeholders through quarterly and annual reporting, um, and yet if you look at the 2017 ICO market, a lot of these you know projects were just raising tons of money, and there was going to be no transparency in how their treasuries were managed um, or how their tokens were ultimately distributed over time. There was just kind of these earmarked funds, um, you know, you you launch a token, you basically pre-sell the token and then 30% of it or 20% of it would be reserved for the team. But you didn't know, are there any strings attached to that? You know, is there an investing period? Um, how does the team or foundation or, you know, whomever, you know, kind of disclose this over time? Um, and that's really important, um, particularly in these illiquid ecosystems, because if you don't have that information, you have no idea when Basically, there's going to be a massive wall of of, of sale, uh, you know, sales that um, that hit a given small market. Uh, and our concern was that the, the market was getting so hot in 2017, this was going to be a pervasive issue in 2018, 2019. Um, it, it didn't take a rocket scientist to to know that it was a bubble in 2017. Um, but you know, sure enough, the most of these assets collapsed in value by 90 
plus percent, uh, almost all of them. In fact, even Bitcoin was down by 85% uh, in the worst part of the bear market. And a lot of these you know, lost 99% plus of, of their value along the way. Um, and, um, and, and the whole concept behind Masari and what we worked on, you know, basically throughout that entire bear market was developing communication channels with the, you know, either community representatives or the actual companies or teams behind these projects and, uh, built out a disclosures framework that was common sense that, you know, was, was opt-in, but ultimately answered some of these unresolved questions that, uh, would ultimately feed into things like, you know, free float or liquid supply and implied inflation rates and other quantitative sets um, that um, that ultimately you know could be leveraged not just by on-chain FX um, but by you know basically any other third party that would build on top of that open marketplace. So in the in the kind of first iteration, um, you know I kind of imagined a um, a data marketplace where you know Masari is this you know open data library that's you know is, is basically run through uh, get, uh, open source contributions, but then anyone that's contributing information and data um, would have you know, a mechanism to be rewarded for their contributions or for their, the work that they're doing in curating certain data sets. Um, but a lot of the um, kind of incentive schemes that we thought about and that we worked on in, in early 2018 um, ended up uh, I don't want to say being a non-starter. Probably were being would have been a non-starter at the time because the U.S. regulations, particularly around securities, um, and it would have been dangerous dangerous for us to get started that way because it might have looked like if we were doing a token or something like that, or, or even just a mechanism similar to that, it could have looked like a security since we hadn't actually built anything just yet. So we ended up putting that in the back burner. The market was also cratering. Um, and, you know, instead of thinking about these as two separate, you know, entities, uh, I just said to Dan, like, you know, we, we should just acquire on chain effects and, and, and incorporate it fully into the product. We'll, we'll run this as like a centralized information business for the foreseeable future, because, hey, a byproduct of, of you know, some of the work that we've done is people tend to trust us more than they trust uh, tokens <laughs> right now because they're so immature. So we uh, we end up combining the, the the two businesses, and you can think about Masari as like the API layer, and on chain FX as the first front end interface um, that we'd uh, kind of offered to, to you know the world um, to access that open information. I want to talk a little bit about your audience because you mentioned them as like a professional crypto investor. If you had to describe this audience in more detail, who is it and how are they using Masari day to day to do to make investments or, or things like that? When I say crypto professional, um, I intentionally don't use the word Bitcoin because I think Bitcoin is basically an asset class in and of itself in some respects. Right. So um, when I say crypto, I'm, I'm really talking about everything except for Bitcoin. Yes, Bitcoin's a, a, a part of that from an information standpoint. But um, Bitcoin is also pretty plain vanilla, um, right? It, it's it's money. It doesn't have a team. It, the code base is is um, very slow uh, to be updated for good reason because you want it to be resilient from censorship and and you know, potential future attacks. Um, it is important in a macro context, but at the end of the day, you don't need an information provider, um, particularly a research firm that just focuses on Bitcoin in particular, because for, for most people that are making an investment decision, it's not, um, uh, it's, Bitcoin would be thought of as like one component of a portfolio and it's a binary decision. Yes, this is interesting. No, it's not. And if you know, you've made that decision, then you're just thinking about how do you manage your allocation over time. Um, so it's really, really tough to build an information business just around a single asset. Um, when I say crypto professionals, I'm talking about the folks who are thinking about assets beyond Bitcoin um, and that need to stay up to date on developments for a whole host of reasons. Um, you could be working in an exchange and you need to know which assets to list um, or from a compliance standpoint, which ones are supportable in a given jurisdiction. Um, if you're talking about a custodian, uh, they need to know both how the blockchains themselves work, if there's how governance works, if there's ever any concern 
about you know forks or or how do they handle airdrop tokens or, or how do they handle security updates? Um, if you're talking about investors, obviously they're going to have you know different set of requirements and and are are going to look beyond just you know what the day to day price looks like and, and into the fundamentals, um, like the the capital structure of the entire network, how assets are dispersed, etc. And, you know, kind of so on down the line. So I'd say it, it's really um, any sophisticated party that's thinking about non-Bitcoin crypto assets as a universe um, of activity. And most of that, you know, is going to be investment activity, but a good chunk of it is going to be also supporting investment activity um, through custody, through trading tools, through exchange, um, through staking services for, for some of these newer networks where, um, you are essentially not only kind of speculating, but also actively participating in, in the network by actually putting up the, the stake that you do own. There's, there's kind of a whole ecosystem of uh, professionals that have emerged since 2017 that just frankly did not exist until this last cycle. Um, and that's you know kind of the audience that we thought would emerge beyond uh, just the, the kind of raw speculator crowd that, um, you know, really was, was the only crowd available when we, when we started the company. Let's move now and talk about the business and products that Masari offers, because there are a few different pieces here. First, you know, can you talk a little bit about the disclosures registry, which, you know, you refer to as a sort of Edgar for crypto. Having survived the bubble of 2017, I certainly understand the opacity of crypto and therefore the need for this, but many of the listeners of this podcast, A, probably don't understand crypto very much at all, and B, don't really quite understand why this needs to exist. So how does this work, and is there a revenue component for Masari? The the disclosures registry was always a means to an end for us to just bootstrap our, our research library and um, do so in a way where we were simultaneously setting standards around uh different qualitative data sets. Um, and so basically we started by reverse engineering a 10K or a prospectus uh, for, for a company that would go public. Um, what are the things that you want to know? You want to know what the overall ownership looks like. That's any detail around token supply, how it's issued, how it's allocated on day one, whether there's any inflation incorporated, whether there's any... Um, programmatic buybacks or, or kind of, you know, burn mechanism with, within the, um, the protocol itself that would change the supply over time, et cetera. Um, you also wanted to know who the key stakeholders were. Those could be core developers. Those could be, you know, companies that have, you know, basically raised money through an ICO, um, et cetera. And, you know, these, these token protocols themselves are not securities, right? So, so they're not rep, they are not representative of ownership stakes in a company, um, even if a company ended up raising money to ship uh, and, and ultimately develop uh, one of these tokenized protocols. And, and, and so I think that's, you know, if you're in the industry, you know that there was like a lot of doublespeak around that time for regulatory reasons. But at the end of the day, uh, what's important to know is that at scale, a tokenized protocol is supposed to be decentralized in both ownership and operation. And that means you're not necessarily going to benefit from having a company, an executive team, and a board of directors that's responsible for ongoing community updates and disclosures. Uh, so the question you know, behind the disclosures registry early on is how do we brute force this? And, and you know, our answer was pretty simple. You're not going to get anyone to speak on behalf of Bitcoin because Bitcoin is not a company. But a team that raised money through a corporate entity, through an ICO in 2017, was almost certainly a centralized entity. Even if the kind of aspirational goal was to ultimately um, disintermediate themselves over time and, and decentralize the, the protocol over a period of years. And in fact, this is what's happened for the past few years. The, the good teams that raised money in 2017 used that to build out the protocol, to, to kind of build out the ecosystem around their project, and in some cases have even dissolved the corporate entities that were affiliated with the project at first um, in favor of, of just letting the, um, the new protocol live on its, on its own. 
Um, and we knew that was going to happen. And, and so, you know, begs the question, okay, what happens with the teams that work with us early that ultimately, you know, disrupt themselves and, and decentralize if they're not able to speak on behalf of, of the project that they helped, you know, give birth to in, in, in just a couple of years before. Um, and so when I say, you know, the registry was really a means to an end, what I mean is um, we have kind of transitioned slowly to the model of working with communities versus just working with teams. Um, and it's a continuum, but uh, we now have been able to bootstrap our, our research team to such a point where we can kind of proactively monitor these different ecosystems, use the same rubric and, and quote unquote disclosures framework that we previously developed. But instead of that information being sourced by a company, now it's usually sourced from a combination of a company a set of representatives within a certain community um, or our research team directly. Um, and over time, I imagine that's going to get, you know, kind of progressively more decentralized for truly open networks um, like Bitcoin, like Ethereum, uh, and for you know, either smaller or earlier stage uh, projects, it, it will be much more centralized. And in either case, uh, our team is, is uh, kind of working to ferret out misinformation and, and also kind of verify claims uh, that are made by uh, more centralized teams in the space. That service you can think about much like uh, an audit service. So, you know, Misari being one of the big four uh, accounting firms for for crypto, instead of going through uh, a 10K and, and ultimately scrubbing the, the financial filings of, of a company, though, we are looking at all the key metrics that um, drive these different tokens and, and their underlying protocols and um, using a combination of, of kind of our team and direct disclosures or, or, or um, publicly available information and, and positioning it in a way that's that's easy to standardize across projects. So then the core of the business, I believe, is Masari Pro, which is a $300 per year subscription. What does a subscriber get if they become a subscriber and how does this help them you know, again, with, with investment decisions or, or trading strategies or things like that? Um, well, uh, Pro is actually secondary. Uh, our, our primary business is this, uh, this product that we call Intel. And Intel is uh, an umbrella enterprise product that covers both um, token-affiliated teams uh, through what we call Intel coverage, uh, and then just Intel itself, which is for uh, the consumers of that information. So you can think about this like uh, corporate actions, uh, alerts, and monitoring um, in the traditional financial realm. You know, we're basically doing that with protocol level events. Uh, so one way to think about it is the prospectus that we would uh, create and, and maintain for a team that we traditionally work with on the registry side um, is um, you know that profile is static, but any changes to that. Um, are ultimately what investors really care about, what what kind of professionals really care about. So they're not quite flat-footed on their developments. Um, all of those events, all of those updates are what we're kind of focused on on curating and, and, and keeping in the system uh, through through Masari Intel. So it's a two-sided uh, information uh, product. One, um, we're kind of cleaning information from teams that are working with us and giving them white glove service and return uh, and that's basically, you know, subsumed the, the the registry model. And then the other side of that is, you know, large exchanges, custodians, um, uh, you know, investment firms and, and, you know, other data companies in some, some cases, et cetera. So that's the kind of core of the business, that, that two-sided um, enterprise information product. Uh, Pro is really a mean, a, a, another uh, way for us to scale with the industry because, our thesis is that you know there's going to be individuals at most major companies that need different information services before there are teams that that actually need you know an enterprise level of, of uh, information. And so Pro is priced at 300 bucks a year just because we want individuals that are trying to stay up to speed in the industry to have the tools they need. Uh, or at least the, the very basic tools that they need to, to be successful and, and stay up to date on, on everything that's going on. Um, Pro is basically a combination of daily curated insights from our research team, um, access to our screener, which was on chain effects, the, the tool that you mentioned before, that's now just called the Masari screener. 
um, a full charting library, and then uh, an alerts system for uh, for staying up to date on on asset specific news. Um, so that's you know something that has has been you know growing very nicely uh, the last year or so. But um, we think about it really as as kind of the middle step between a free user and then an enterprise user. Um, those pro users are where we will find kind of the individuals within their respective organizations that ultimately become Masari Intel or enterprise purchasers. And then finally, Masari has an advertising component that many who visit Masari.io might not know because you do have a podcast and a newsletter. Uh, the newsletter, which I imagine has been the same one that you've had since early 2013. How do you think about advertising in relation to Masari? And how have these products helped support the more the, the, the more critical parts of the business, i.e. Pro and Intel? Yeah, I mean, like I said, the, the core of the business is focused on enterprise. And we do have the ability to, you know, kind of monetize small professional subscribers as well. But we think about them as almost like qualified leads for the broader product. Um, it's very, very difficult to go B2B and B2C simultaneously with a business. We are B2B. So I don't really think about the podcast or newsletter as um, advertising driven, you know, B2C businesses. Uh, they you know, really, what we're, what we're doing is like net negative marketing spend. You know, we have a, brand in the industry. We've got a network in the industry that we develop in part because we, we do have these other um, broader megaphones that we can tap. And um, so, you know, we, we found out um, pretty early on that we could kind of have our cake and eat it too by offering some uh, very subtle and, 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 you know, less egregious forms of advertising and, and you know, I wouldn't even call it advertising, call it sponsorship. Um, that, um, you know, allows us to, to monetize some of these marketing channels that, that we do have. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how other folks in media think about it, but I, to me, the difference between advertising and, and sponsorship is, um, sponsorship is, is probably a little bit more passive and more aligned, um, with the advertiser, you know, in an advertising model, um, you think about, you know, podcast hosts, they're going and, and saying, Hey, we, um, we want to um, we want to acquire this demographic of users uh, for our product or, or service, and so we're going to find someone that has an audience that that looks just like that. With with us, um, a lot of our audience uh, is the same as our users is the same as our sponsors, right? So there's a ton of alignment, and, and you know, to the extent that you know we can uh, work with teams that you know ultimately are. are either uh, data partners of ours or other infrastructure partners of ours, um, very oftentimes it's, you know, we've got multiple different business relationships simultaneously. Um, so you won't ever see a, you know, a, a mass, you know, retail brand as, as the advertiser and sorry, newsletter, it's going to be like usually a, a crypto focused company, an infrastructure company that's targeting and, and kind of working with the same, users and in many cases is working directly with us as a partner in some other capacity as well. So between Intel and Pro and the uh, negative CAC uh, marketing products you have with the newsletter and the podcast, is Masari profitable today? And if not, when do you forecast reaching that point? Um, yeah, I think we could be profitable, um, you know, but we, I'll, I'll put it to you this way. We have plenty of runway and, um, you know, the, the revenue is, has grown significantly uh, year over year, multiples uh, of, of last year's revenue. Um, and we're just kind of scaling the team along with revenue and, and kind of the, the health of the overall market. Um, so, you know, we're, we're not profitable. I don't think it's really smart for us to be profitable knowing that capital will be available, but we could get there if, if you know, we were forced into a corner. Um, said another way, you know, our runway is long enough that uh, that, you know, isn't really a, a concern right now. So I remember reading in a, the piece where you announced the acquisition of OnChain FX and you wrote regarding your flywheel that you want to build the largest and most engaged audience in crypto, quote, by any means necessary, end quote. 
What has that looked like over the past couple of years? And what have you learned about audience development that you didn't realize when getting started with Masari? We compete with Google Chrome uh, as, as much as we do with other data companies. So, you know, one of the challenges in, in being an effective aggregator is being the only source of information that, that people need to turn to. Right. And so when we think about um, owning audience and, and, and becoming like the portal through which people access information, period, in this industry, um, we, we really we need to be able to capture everything and you need to be able to present it in a way that's, that's kind of real time, that's just in time, that's, that's you know, uh, kind of consistent quality. And um, I, I think I, I, I didn't realize how willing most people in, in this market um, would be to rely on 20 different data sources, right? Um, and, and, and just have, you know, different, uh, like a, a different routine that they actually went through in terms of uh, tracking information across all these disparate feeds. Um, and, you know, really our goal at, at Masari is, is to allow people to access all 20 of those feeds that they would go to independently in different browser tabs on a day-to-day basis directly through our site. The question is, how do you do that? Um, and on-chain FX was kind of the first instance of us um, satisfying that need uh, for, for a given user, right? So so day one, Masari was just the kind of the, the open API and then the, the profile data on all these different assets. Um, well, when we acquired on-chain FX, then we had pricing data, we had a whole slew of metrics. Um, and then when you clicked through on a given asset, you would see our profile data from Masari, right? So, so now you've kind of captured two use cases. Um, when we added the charting library, now you don't necessarily need to go to TradingView. Most power users will still have their TradingView you know, library, but, but at least that core functionality is there and anybody can build and kind of create you know, user-generated charts. Our team can use our own charts and we can kind of drive people back to the core product. Okay, so now you have a screener or a comps table, a chart, and then research profiles. Well, the next thing that we have is, is kind of alerts and, and kind of events um, specific to given assets. Um, that becomes almost like a mini newsfeed. It's not a newsfeed in the sense that we're aggregating, um, you know, third-party articles per se, but instead we're kind of aggregating, you know, specific events or, or, or uh, like 8K type, you know, corporate events that, that are happening on a day-to-day basis. So once again, now you've kind of brought all that in-house. And so we're, we're going to continue to um, both invest in relationships with other, what we'd consider best-in-class data providers, and then also aggregate other third-party information. So, you know, will you see the equivalent of like a, a, a curated RSS feed on Masari? Probably at some point in the future. Um, will you see, um, you know, a whole host of other third-party data sets piping through those core tools that we've built? Of course. Um, and um, and so I think uh, the the holy grail for, for any aggregators to basically have your own search bar that people can you know, type in a, a search, a command, and, and, and just get the information they want. That's Google in a nutshell. That's Bloomberg in a nutshell. Um, and, uh, and if we do things right and we are thoughtful about how we scale this up, um, that should be Masari as well. Um, but it's a very, very long road to get there, obviously. And, um, and in the meantime, um, you know, I think we, we look at kind of actions taken on site, and, and kind of time spent on site as some of the key things that we need to, uh, to solve for. Because if people are, um, are doing more different types of activities uh, on Masari, it's a good uh, sign that we are slowly replacing one-off third-party resources and more people are just relying on us for, for that specific data set or that specific tool. So building a research and data company is perhaps a little different than running a traditional content media company. And you've now done both with Masari and Coindesk. How do you think other traditional B2B media companies should think about this strategy and potentially replicate it for their respective industries? I think it's insanely difficult to monetize research and content standalone. 
Um, so I almost always, and, and by the way, this was true with Coindesk as well. Um, we always, uh, and I can tell you definitively, like we thought about good, strong editorial content as marketing, not in the content marketing way, but in, you know, kind of the, the brand building and audience development way that ultimately you'd be able to sell other products. In Coindesk's case, it was um, large, expensive annual conferences, right? That, that turned into eight figures of revenue and, and, you know, within the first couple of years after we acquired the business. Um, and I know this definitively because we acquired Coindesk for that editorial coverage and that brand. We were already in the process of building an event, Right. So, so, you know, the, the, the brand and the, and kind of the, the top of funnel for the audience um, was basically our conference marketing funnel. The business was uh, a conference business. It just happened to have this really, really powerful marketing engine and, and something that, you know, a, a community uh, would, um, would regularly come back to for information. Um, I think uh, you know there, there's obviously going to be different ways to, to monetize, but I think either memberships or, or, or subscriptions um, are obvious. Um, Advertising-based models are notoriously difficult, and, and they get more difficult by the by the year. Um, so I, I think the more you can do to directly monetize audience versus indirectly monetize is um, is you know, probably the only way that I would ever think about building a media business. I'm not sure, I'm not sure just at, at such massive scale. Um, and, you know, good examples of this would be like sports media, like Barstool um, or, you know, other entertainment media, but not um, high importance information uh, businesses where, where you're making, you know, where the stakes are a little bit higher and uh, maybe the information is, is a little bit less sexy. Looking forward, which admittedly is exciting today, considering where the crypto markets are, where do you see Masari in the next three years? It's all a function of the crypto market. Uh, I, you know, I, I think we uh, have been shipping product uh, really quickly and 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 you know doing a lot with with a, a small scrappy team. Um, I think our our you know coverage uh, and and our our kind of analyst research has been top notch. Um, I think we are, like I said, going to continue to kind of refine the, the rough edges of our products, but really kind of focus on on the core of what we've already built and, and just try to ingest um, more types of data, um, more assets, uh, and, um, and, and, you know, generally um, improve our, our discoverability um, of different content types within our library as uh, as kind of a core focus. And where that leads in the next few years is really going to be a function of, of how quickly the crypto markets develop. If we see the next super cycle of growth, then, yeah, of course, we're going to have um, a, a, a pretty good run the next few years. If the market is sideways, then, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll just keep plugging along like we have for the past few years during, you know, this, this most recent bear market. Um, if Bitcoin gets, you know, somehow shut down or there's a, a material exploit uh, in the code or we go into a depression and everybody runs away from magic internet money. Um, yeah. Then, then we like any other market dependent information provider will not be doing very well, but uh, so far uh, we're in a good place. We're just crossed 15,000 again with Bitcoin as Bitcoin goes, so goes crypto. So uh, I, I expect that the next couple of years are going to be uh, pretty darn good for, for us and others that are, are in the market on the data and info side for crypto. I want to wrap up with the same two questions I ask every operator that I speak to on this podcast. First, throughout your career, what is a mistake that you have made that you obviously wish you hadn't? And what did you learn from it? Oh, man, there's there's some inside baseball here. So, I, so Jacob, you know what the real answer is. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll leave it at that. I'll, uh, I'll try to come up with a, a, a second answer. Um, so, you know, I'd say um, I think this is probably true for, for most independent uh, authors. The, um, I think one of the biggest mistakes that I made was looking at small numbers early on 
and getting discouraged instead of just kind of focusing on the compound growth. Um, and, uh, and, and if, if you're kind of getting off, um, to a good start in, um, in any given market and, and you're really starting to make inroads, get into the first like couple hundred people that will actually pay attention and, and, and you know, follow you or, or care, even with a, like a free newsletter, it's really, really tough because there's just so much fucking information um, about everything. And, and a lot of it's just noise and, and, you know, it can be very, very difficult to, just to break into people's attention spans. Um, so, you know, as you're thinking about producing content, like that slog of, of developing like each individual persona and, and making sure that you've kind of earned their attention, not just that you kind of acquire it, but that, you know, you, you can build some, some stickiness to the audience um, is very difficult. Um, and I don't need to, you know, really tell that to, to anyone in, in your audience because they're, they're probably mostly operators themselves. But I think um, the, the only times that I kind of kick myself are when um, I, you know, maybe took my foot off the accelerator because it seemed like things were getting a little bit too flat um, and, and, and the growth wasn't quite there. And I think crypto kind of exacerbates this too because of the different market cycles, right? Like things get hot, you think you're a celebrity, then the market cools off, you lose a bunch of subscribers or, or, or in you know, best case scenario, things go sideways for a little bit. And, um, and that can be frustrating because it feels like you're just like running in place. Um, but really every single, you know, kind of post every single, um, high quality, you know, insight, it, it, it's all cumulative at the end of the day. Um, and so, uh, I'd say, you know, for, for individual producers, especially that's, um, uh, that, that's, that's probably what I'd focus most of my attention on. And the good news is it's never become easier as you know, to, um, to get those first couple hundred subscribers, to get those, you know, first, you know, few hundred, you know, users or, or, or members that will actually, you know, chime into what you have to say, provided you kind of pick the right market and, and you know, the persona and you've got the right kind of subspecialty, uh, to really kind of hone in on, on, you know, a specific audience that you can, you know, grow, um, from and, and, and grow with as, as, you know, that audience matures. And second, if you could give other perspective or current operators some advice, either around managing editorial teams, which you have done, or building data companies, uh, what would that advice be? Um, I think with uh, editorial, it's, it's obvious you, you want to build um, good communication habits and, and kind of policies and procedures between the, the business and the, um, and the editorial side. Um, you know, I, I think... I've seen situations where the two are, are almost indistinguishable um, from each other. And, and those tend to not be very strong editorial brands when the perception is that everything is pay to play. On the other hand, um, if the kind of firewalls between the two sides of the business are, are you know, too steep or, or too impenetrable, um, yeah, then, then you basically just get this like unaccountable cowboy behavior on the editorial side, which I don't think is healthy either. And at an extreme, sometimes you can kind of lose the, the finger on the pulse of the market. Um, and one, um, you know, kind of maybe one tangible example for, for how we've tried to think about this at Masari is, you know, I'm, uh, we're very, very clear about expectations with our analysts uh, who aren't editors, but they're they're still covering the subject matter. They're, they're the ones producing content um, about two things, right? One, um, you are able to, and probably in some cases expected to be investing in, in these assets um, because if you're not invested in them, you don't understand how they work um, in many cases, right? These aren't like passive shares of equity and, and kind of ownership stakes in, in Operating companies you have no affiliation with. In many in many instances, um, owning a token or, or owning one of these assets you know, requires you to actually use them. So in in kind of traditional financial services, that's a big no no. In, in our, our case, we say as long as the conflict is disclosed, then it's um, it's not problematic, or, or at least people can kind of make their own assessments. And there are limits to that, right? Like we don't have people, you know. Um, buying assets and then writing them out on the next day. If they, if, if they did and, and we found out, then they'd get fired. But like all that is kind of very, very clearly laid out so that the rules of engagement are, are kind of well known. Um, and, um, and then the other thing is, 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 you know, just knowing that, you know, we are going to build like hopefully an army 
of analysts. And, you know, we're only as good as, as kind of the process that we put into place. Um, we cannot become dependent on any like individual rock stars. I think the only way that works is if, you know, like the celebrity um, talent that you have on the content side is, is basically part of like the, the absolute core team. But it's incredibly disruptive if that talent ever turns over. Um, in Masari's case, I started as an analyst. You know, I have more followers than, than every other analyst on our team combined uh, and the corporate like, you know, Twitter handle. Right. So, so um, it's you know, it sounds silly, but like, you know, I am the celebrity talent in, in that respect. Um, so we can always build underneath that brand and then hopefully accelerate a ton of younger kind of up and coming analysts, uh, even if they're, you know, experienced analysts, but are kind of up and coming within crypto. Um, it makes it much, much, much you know easier to sustain. Um, and, um, and, you know, if you've got that trusted brand to begin with, then um, I think it uh, it kind of you know, pervades the rest of the organization, and, and you can kind of balance that need to make money with the need to be independent and um, and you know, not pull any punches on the editorial side. Um, you you mentioned data as well. I don't think there's any difference though. I think you know whether you're curating um, sentences or raw data points, uh, the the kind of core ethos are the same. You want to make sure that you're um, presenting everything in context, um, that it's reliable, that is ultimately um, on its face, best in class, not just, you know, whoever's kind of paying the bills. If you enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe and give it a five-star rating with your thoughts. If you want even more, sign up for the newsletter at amediaoperator.com. Each Tuesday, I analyze the latest media news. And on Fridays, I do deep dives into specific strategic and tactical topics about building media businesses. Thanks for listening and see you next week.